and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Once again, I wanted to thank everyone who's been sharing the podcast and telling others about it. We've seen more and more people subscribe, and that's always very nice. Uh, speaking of which, we are now officially available on Stitcher. So if that's how you like listening to podcasts, go for it. Also, people tell us that if you rate or comment on iTunes, that helps with our visibility too. So if you're one of those people who are subscribed to the podcast via iTunes, we'd really appreciate a rating and a comment, especially if it's a nice one. I guess you can do a not so nice one too, but we wouldn't like those quite as much. Uh, of course, podcasting is a brand new kind of medium, and Apple's iTunes was a big part of making that happen, just like it also played a big role in really forcing the legacy recording industry into the 21st century, even if they went kind of kicking and screaming the entire way. In a somewhat parallel situation with books, Amazon led the way. It created the Kindle, which revolutionized the ebook market, which had previously been a whole lot of unrealized promise. But with the ebook market also came a separate revolution as well, which was self publishing. Sure, self publishing has been around for ages prior to the Amazon Kindle, but for the most part, it was kind of a complete joke. Vanity publishing scams and that were mainly to separate money from people who couldn't get real book deals. Yet with the rise of things like the Kindle, which provided uh, top to bottom structure for creating, publishing, and selling your ebook, we were launched into a new revolution in self publishing, creating authors who could take much greater control over their own destiny rather than playing the role of a gatekeeper as the big legacy publishers did for years amazon played the role of an enabler anyone can publish that way whether or not your work is any good and this freedom has created a new class of tremendously successful authors some of whom were successful authors in the old world and some who never even bothered with that process but that new world in which anyone can publish has faced quite a lot of criticism much of it coming from an old guard of authors who really liked the old publishing world in which the big publishers not only approved of their work, but also kept the riffraff out of the competitive market. With us today is Barry Eisler, a best-selling author of the John Rain thriller series, who was super successful under the legacy system of big publishing, but then surprised many in that world by shifting to a self-publishing and published through Amazon model. Barry has since gone on to become quite a vocal champion of self-publishing and a regular debunker of attacks on Amazon from all corners. Along with myself and Dennis Yang, we're going to dig in and discuss the nature of self-publishing and the opportunities and challenges that come with it and just why it seems to freak some people out so much. So with that introduction... <laughs> Hello, Barry. Hey, Mike. How are you? <laughs> all right. How are you? Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you for joining us. So um, wh why does self-publishing freak people out? Wow, it's a big question. <laughs> I think the short answer, and it, it could be a longer one, but the short answer is that um, there's a whole industry that has grown up uh, and has been built on the notion of scarcity and selection. So if you are part of the legacy industry, whether you're an editor or an agent or have some other function in the industry, or if you're one of the authors who's made it past those gatekeepers and now has a, a publishing contract, you're a made man or made woman, um, you feel special. 
you feel if you're an editor like you're someone who can who has the power you feel this way with reason you have the power to make or break someone's dream for every thousand people waving a manuscript at you you have um, the ability to select the one that will get into some bookstores and again if you're one of the authors who's been selected that way you feel special you got the pat on the head i think it's just human to want to preserve a system like that because that system becomes the source of, uh, well, of your position, your power, your profits, and uh, has a lot to do with your status and your self-esteem. So um, that, I think, is probably the root of the whole thing. I mean, it used to be, it's like this, it used to be, if you said just the statement, I'm published, that meant something, and people (laughs) wanted to have that feeling for themselves. Now the statement, I'm published, doesn't mean anything anymore. (laughs) The metrics have changed. And the metrics have changed in a way that uh, are not comfortable for a lot of people who used to be able to say with pride, well, I'm published. Because, for example, you could get published and you could sell 100 books. The book might not have done well, but you had that legacy contract. You got the pat on the head. There was this bright line distinction between the unwashed masses, the wannabes, uh, the unpublished, and you even if you only sold 100 books. Now to, to be able to say, well, I'm published, people are like, well, how many books did you sell? <laughs> right. It's like Hugh, Hugh Howie sold like a million. <laughs> he, he self-published. So, so I think that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. The metrics for status and success are changing, and you just have to expect the old guard not to be uh, immediately comfortable with that. Yeah, because, I mean, they, uh, Clay Shirky had the famous line that, you know, uh, publishing used to be an industry and now it's a button. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, when you think about it, you're like, Oh yeah, <laughs> that, that, I mean, you know, obviously there's a lot more to it than that, but you know, if, if being a published author is part of your identity, yeah, yeah. um, you know, this new world sort of strips away a big part of that identity. No doubt. And he said so many smart things. Um, Clay Shirky has said so many smart things about publishing and a related one is that industries will seek to preserve the problem <laughs> for which they are so, the solution. Right. And so it's, it's funny. I'm a pretty, um, as you point out, I'm a fairly vocal critic of the, <laughs> the big five and the legacy system, the legacy publishing system. And it, and it gets sort of personal on the other end sometimes. And I, I try to take pains to say, look, I, I, it doesn't feel personal for me. I don't think that the suboptimal practices of the legacy industry are the result of people in the legacy industry being uniquely bad people or, or bad people <laughs> at all for that matter, right. evil or anything like that. They're human beings and they're doing things that human beings do under certain circumstances. And one of those things, as Glacier likes to put it, is attempting to preserve the problem for which they're the solution. And the problem for which their solution is uh, a scarce world, a world of books that is made scarce by the technology of the codex, the fact that the only technology for distributing and reading books until recently was paper. That makes a scarce world, and then uh, there arises a system, uh, a class of mandarins whose job is to screen out the thousand books that they don't think are worthy for everyone they think is worthy, and that gives them all the, the power and status and things I'm talking about. And as that system changes, well, of course they're not going to like it. I don't blame them for that. Right. Well, so, but then let's bring up the other criticism that comes up often enough, certainly, which is that, well, now, now it's Amazon's world, right? So, you know, with the ebook world, Amazon dominates and I don't think anyone denies that. Right. And so, you know, and I see it as, you know, as I said in the opening that, you know, Amazon is an enabler and that anyone can go and publish on, on Amazon. They're not acting as the role as a gatekeeper, but they are sort of a dominant player and that gives them certain powers that certainly some people find to be threatening, perhaps with good reason. For sure. 
So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, there's so many things I find so interesting about this revolution in publishing. And one of them is this. Uh, so a week ago, I was on a panel. I think it was a week ago today, in fact. But anyway, I was on a, a panel at Digital Book World in New York. And the title of the panel was... Uh, can Amazon be constrained and should it be constrained? And my immediately, when it was my turn, when it was my turn to speak, I said, among other things, I said, the question strikes me as a very strange one because this is a company that invented the digi online book selling and uh, made digital books, uh, uh, the platform for digital books a reality and enabled self-publishing as a viable means of, meet, of reaching a mass market of readers that has sold more books in more form, formats in more places at lower prices than anyone in the world. And we're having a panel called How Do We Stop That? <laughs> it's very strange to me. So it's not, and it's not that I'm unconcerned about Amazon gathering too much power. I don't want there to be any massively dominant system uh, or player or cartel in the publishing industry. I don't think that's good for anyone, that sort of centralization of power. What fascinates me is that we already have that sort of centralization of power. We've always had it, and it exists in New York. Among these five, it used to be six, and it was more before that, but there's, there's just ongoing consolidation in the legacy industry. It's a group of essentially incestuous companies of people with more or less the same backgrounds from the same places, the same educations. They intermarry. They swap companies. They go from one to the other. They go to the same parties. They're a lot alike. Right. And they're making, traditionally, the decisions about the one out of a thousand books that people will be able to read, that they'll, that they'll hear about, they'll be able to access, and they'll be able to read. And that's the way it's always been. And so I think it's in part a devil you know situation. People have just never, what else could we have? I mean, right. nobody's even asked the question. That's also human. I never asked the question until Amazon's digital books and self-publishing came along. And that's when it started to occur to me, wow, um, these guys are actually screening out about, I don't even know what the ratio is. It might be more than a thousand. It's got to be at least a thousand. At least a thousand books that people are trying to get published. These guys are denying public denying publication to those books and publishing the one that they think is worthy. I do not think this is censorship, but <laughs> it is interesting to note that it f the function, the result, is the same as censorship. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I like to say when people say, yeah, but they're, come on, they're guardians of rich literary culture and curators <laughs> of literary culture and they nurture authors and all this kind of stuff and we need their gatekeeping function. Sometimes what I say is, do you think that the internet would be better with gatekeepers? <laughs> because it's an interesting question. I yep. mean, the internet for any... And so what people like to say, especially in the legacy system, is look, we, we perform a valuable screening function. Most of the stuff out there is crap. And, uh, and you can tell that all the self-publishing stuff is crap. Occasionally a gem creeps through. But what we do is we screen out the crap, we present the gems, and we provide this valuable service for readers. There's some truth to that. Um, my response to that is if you do that great curate, curating role well, you should be able to charge for it because it'll be valuable to people, right. I think. Um, but regardless, yeah, their job has been to deny the light of day to all those different books. And... Uh, if you, if you think that's a good thing, then I think it would follow that the internet would also be better right. with some sort of governing body preventing the, <laughs> the unwashed masses who are not capable of deciding what's good for them and useful and beneficial for them, screening it all out for them, preventing them from even knowing, knowing it exists. I've yet to find anyone who says, yeah, the internet would be better 
Well, there are, there are some people <laughs> who, who certainly do seem to at you least know, imply so, that. And, and you know what? The, the, the people who, who live that yeah. um, are the governments of Saudi Arabia and right. China. Sure. And, you know, and yes, and certain um, authoritarian personalities <laughs> in the U.S. government, too. But those are the people who think, yeah, we could really make this Internet thing work better if we had some gatekeepers and more rules and that yeah. sort of thing. I mean, the thing that gets me is that, you know, I think you're exactly right, right? And there is a role for the curation, but it's this weird sort of mindset that says that, um, the the curating role should mean that these other things don't don't happen at all, right? I mean, right. you can still have the you know all the the bad content and still have a curating curating role that is picking out the good stuff from all of that mess. Yeah. And then if you look at it and you say, well, okay, if their their main value is the curating role, then the deals that they're offering seem really kind of ridiculous because they're basically taking the copyright and the majority of the royalties in exchange for some of the marketing and a curating role. Yeah, the theory of marketing, I should say. Yeah, I mean, yes. it sometimes happens. Yeah, but um, but we always have to be careful not to conflate the theory, the <laughs> ideal of publishing well, that was, with the reality. I, I had this experience where you know um, I haven't written a book, but I, I've been approached a couple times about you know trying to take something that I've done with TechDirt and write a book um, based on some of some of what I've written. And so I've talked to to different people here and there, and a couple different publishers, and and. And one of the things that, that always comes back is, well, um, you know, what we really like is that you have the marketing platform, you know, through TechDirt. And I'm like, right. But then if I'm going to do a deal with you, like, isn't that what I was going to you guys for? That's a super interesting question. I, I remember um, uh, not for his most recent book, uh, No Place to Hide, but for the book that came bef- before that, um, And Justice for Some, Glenn Greenwald's mm-hmm. uh, book. So I remember going to see Glenn speak in Berkeley and... Um, the book had been out for maybe a week at that point. I remember going to my local bookstore, Kepler's, the day it came out. They didn't have a copy because the, the publisher had failed to supply them. There was some sort of screw-up. And the, uh, the digital version wasn't available for something like at least a week, and I think it was significantly longer, um, after the pub date. Meanwhile, Glenn's got like 400 people who've come to hear him at um, Berkeley. They ran out of books quickly, not, mm-hmm. enough, for, you know, not enough to satisfy the demand. He's on Rachel Maddow and all these other shows, and the digital book's not available for all the people who are watching on their tele- they're watching Rachel watching Rachel Maddow interview him on television. They've got their Kindles in hand. They can just with a couple of clicks they could have ordered the book, but it wasn't available then. And I was thinking, okay, his publisher didn't get him on Maddow. His publisher didn't bring those right. four hundred people into his to his book signing. I mean, this guy's a one man marketing machine. He's got all those connections and he's got all that demand for him to be on uh, all these shows, which will amplify his message and get the word out about the book. All his publisher is doing at this point is just fulfilling the book. <laughs> and except not doing a they're very not good even job. doing that. Yeah. Wow. So, so Glenn, if you're listening, let's talk about self-publishing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really. Who did publish his books? I don't, really I don't remember. It was one of the one of the big five. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, where where does the role of of curation come to? Like where does it where does it fit in this new world? Like how do I find good things, good content to read? Yeah. You know, is it is Reddit really the model of, of curation now? Or, like, or or just even like Amazon ratings? Right. right? Yeah. Right. So that's this is such a great question. Because one of the things I've noticed again and again in the revolution in publishing is this human tendency to conflate a function, in this case mm-hmm. call it curation with the entity that has traditionally provided that function, right. which in this case is the big five. They perform this, this win. I call it winnowing, but it doesn't matter. It's, you know, curation, it doesn't matter what yeah. you call it. And, uh, 
And so a lot of times people say, look, if, 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 if New York goes away, then there will be a tsunami of crap. And in fact, for anyone who's listening, Google tsunami of crap, Joe Conrath, you probably just could find it with the title, the tsunami of crap. Joe, Joe debunked this notion, I think five years ago, and this was probably his metaphor when he talked about, or his analogy, the internet. He's like, look, right. if there's anything to the tsunami of crap theory, then the internet itself should be useless, right? Because right. for any given person, the internet is mostly crap. And yet every one of us makes beneficial use of the internet every day. Right. So somehow but, but there is other, a lot of crap, mm-hmm. right? And of course. And yeah, I but, think but, that, but the crap doesn't have, you, doesn't don't, get have, you don't have to go through the crap, right? right. If you have a, a decent map. So the question is, right. what the is map? the map? Right. Where yeah. is that map? Exactly. Yeah. So already um, we have what I like to think of as third party systems okay. kicking in to help consumers win a choice to a level at which they can meaningfully sample it. And what's interesting too is so, and, and some of those things, sorry, are things like um, Amazon reviews. I mean, you just mentioned that or right. Reddit. Um, word of mouth is always a powerful system. Mm-hmm. It's been my observation that anytime there is um, a product or a service that exists in greater abundance than, and then an individual consumer can meaningfully sample for herself, third-party systems come in to help people decide. This mm-hmm. seems true for movies, music, restaurants, travel. There are probably other categories that I'm not thinking of. Right. But it's a demand-side problem. People like books, and, so, and they right. want to find out, like, well, what book will I like? Mm-hmm. So somebody helps them winnow that choice. <clears throat> What's interesting is that the the curators, the self-identified curators, right. they publish about 200,000 books a year. <laughs> That's not that much winnowing if you think about it. That's year in, year out. I mean, right, at the end right. of five years, there's a backlog of a million on the assumption you've only read, say, 50 or even even 250 <clears throat> a book a week over those five years. You've now got a backlog of a million books they have published, hmm. and that's just the, fa- the past five years. The books don't go away. So... So, so it raises so a bit saying, of a question. Yeah, they're not doing much curating or, or winnowing, actually. They're, they're certainly not the final stop right. on the winnowing train right there. I mean, if you walk into even the tiniest bookstore, even the tiniest airport kiosk, <laughs> they have more books than you can meaningfully sample yourself to decide which one. So, so the thing is, people are like, oh, my God, if New York goes away or it evolves into something else or whatever, right. then the tsunami of crap will wash over all of us and all of Western <laughs> civilization will drown. And I'm like, well... I mean, we already have millions of books that these companies have published, and yet somehow people are able to find the relative handful of books every week or month or year or whatever, however, however often they read, that are meaningful to them. How has that happened? Well, through book reviews, I think, and recommendations from your local bookstore, right. from Amazon customer reviews, from I blogs. mean, best, bestseller lists are still like a, a big... Huge. Source, a huge source of, huge. of you know, winnowing. And they, and they always will be. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. You don't know what to read, and you feel like, you know what? A million people can't be wrong, even right. though actually they can be well, because yeah. there are some examples. But, <laughs> but, and but now, it's not but, a bad but guide. There's, but there's been all this stuff, too, with like people gaming the, the yeah. bestseller lists, right? right. There, was a, there was this whole scandal last year where like you can pay some amount. and yep. Yeah, you know, there's a company that was going around yeah. and uh, buying a certain number of books in a certain number of places. Yeah, yeah it was yeah, really kind of sketchy. Yeah. I mean, and even just the, the whole you know, strategy of getting all of your friends friends and everyone you possibly know to buy in that <laughs> right. first week, right? Sure, like sure. you're trying to game the system. I'm not sure how bit, much, yeah. I'm not sure how much that would move the needle, but here's yeah. a, but here's another thing. So, oh, so something I keep noticing in, in the revolution and publishing, which is people will identify <clears throat> something as a new and terrifying problem mm-hmm. that has actually existed as far as I know forever. Hmm. Gaming the system is one of those things. Right. There has been, uh, there have been periodic bouts of moral panic over the integrity of the Amazon customer review system because some author gets outed as being a sock puppet or leaving um, um, 
negative reviews on other authors um, <laughs> for other authors' books out of jealousy. I know it's it's. it's I just have to say, just parenthetically, yeah, it yeah. really does. Like, I, I, I'll tell you what. Um, you got to make up your own mind about what you want to do. If like you yeah. want to be a sock puppet, I personally don't, but I don't really feel like that's the kind of thing. Like if you did it, how would you look in the mirror? Exactly. Yeah, but is. but when, you, when you're when you're that person who's leaving negative, <laughs> nasty reviews and some author just because you decided you don't like that person or that person, you know, I don't know, cut in front of you in line or something, you know, wronged you in some way. Right. Like how do you just you just got to take a deep breath and say, I don't, I don't want to be that person. But anyway, yeah, totally. uh, so there have been periodic bouts of moral panic over the integrity of the Amazon customer review system. And in my opinion, Amazon has overreacted a few times to um, placate the people who are complaining by really throwing out the baby with uh, the proverbial baby with the bathwater, saying, hey, if you have any contact with this person or like you're both authors or um, you were at a conference together, there's some sort of connection that their spiders um, uncover, they'll delete those those uh, customer reviews to maintain the at least appearance of the integrity of their system. Hmm. I think that's a shame. I personally think the way to deal with um, uh, any any sort of repellent or objectionable speech is more speech, not more control. Right. It's just a philosophy of mine. So just make the thing more transparent. Customers aren't stupid; they can read through um, a lot of the a, yeah. a lot of those sorts of. Well, I, I did this uh, the thing last year where there were all these reviews. Um, uh, this uh, um, Susan Crawford, hmm. who's uh, um, you know, an expert in telecom stuff had written this book about the internet and, and net neutrality and all this stuff. And somebody had just sort of pointed to the Amazon reviews. And so I went looking and it was so obvious so quickly that there were all these, you know, one star reviews that were clearly fake. And you could, you could figure out like, they all would say like, I'm a farmer in a small town in middle America. <laughs> and you could immediately tell. Yeah. And it was like the only review this person had ever right, written. Exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, you went through and you could, you know, so it was pretty obvious, pretty quick that, that all those one-star reviews were completely, exactly. you know, complete and bullshit. Not but. that it's not, not that it's not a little bit sad when someone's trying to game a system. Um, and, and it's not that it doesn't cause any harm at all. I mean, occasionally my, you know, my heart goes out to any author who's had some sort any sort of concerted campaign or even just a single right. malicious one-star review. If you have, right. if you have hundreds of reviews of a couple of malicious one-star reviews, it's not really going to matter. But if you're, if you're new and someone does that to you, yeah, maybe it could. It is, yeah. it's not that it doesn't do any damage. It's more a question of, uh, an overreaction to that damage doing even more damage. Right. So anyway, yeah, there've been people, every time there's a system that can offer some advantage, people try to game it. They try to Google the uh, uh, game, Google search resu- results. Mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. ongoing and it's never yeah. going to end, right? So anything that can be gamed is gamed. And what's interesting to me is why people make such a fuss about individuals trying to game, let's say, the Amazon customer review system. And nobody says anything about the long-standing practice of authors blurbing each other's books, which is is just log rolling, back scratching. I mean, 90, I would estimate that 96% of those book reviews are offered by people who haven't read the book and are hoping for something in return. If nothing else, then their name featured prominently on on the book they've blurbed, which then becomes an advertising impression that gets put in front of everyone who looks at that book. So that system's totally corrupt. Why doesn't anyone complain if somebody takes Michiko Kakutani out for lunch in New York and, and uh, you know, sort of wines and dines there and that sort of thing. I mean, that is gaming the system. It's part of being human. It's like, oh, I'm going to make nice with Michiko because if she reviews this book and reviews it positively, that's going to move a lot of copies. How do I get in with her? How do I get her attention? Is that not gaming the system? People are weird about this stuff. Like, it's almost like it's innate, even in human language. I mean, um, if I, I don't know if I can swear on the podcast, yeah, but I, 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 well, if, if, we're, if we're having uh, coffee and I say, um, 
hey, Mike, pass the fucking sugar. Or versus, Mike, would you mind passing the sugar, please? I mean, I'm asking for the same thing, but is what, am I manipulating you by saying please and using you know, nice, polite language? Like, yeah, I'm manipulating you. I'm trying to use the language that will get the intended result. But nobody, <laughs> right. we don't think that way. We just, you know, but am I gaming you? Right. It's just... Well, it's the same. I mean, it's, it's interesting, too, just because, like, with, um, with reviews and stuff, right? So there's all this, and this, will, this could go down a whole nother rabbit hole, which we shouldn't, <laughs> but just yeah. very briefly dip into the rabbit hole. But um, with with book reviews, right? I mean, it's pretty standard that they, you know, will send out tons of books, and I get I get books that just show up in the mail. I don't even know how people get my address sometimes, and these books, you know, and and they expect me to <laughs> to review them, and it, but that's the same thing, right? I mean, they're trying to game the system in terms of of getting getting a review, and and you have the the PR people right. contacting you and pushing things about the book. I mean, and, I I think I feel like the gaming of the system comes into play when people. It feels like you're you're not following the so-called rules. Right? Yes, and the problem is the rules aren't exactly written, yeah. um, and they're kind of just understood, yeah. right? So maybe we should write the rules and be like, "Hey, look, it's okay to send people free books, and it's okay, but or maybe not." And blurbing, and blurbing is okay, and it's okay, is to, okay. it's okay and, to take but, but, Michiko I mean, out for yeah, an expensive lunch. A lot, lunch, of, but, a, a lot of it is is just, I mean, these the rules sort of become established. Like even if they're unwritten rules, right. I think people. You know, if you spend enough time, right. people sort of make yes. those things clear to you. And if but you, that's what if makes it make fuzzy, mistake, right? Yeah. And that's why you don't swear at Mike when you're asking for sugar. Mm. You can. It's fine. <laughs> <You> can. <laughs> I'll still pass the sugar. But. I'd be like, wow, he's very rude, but okay, here's your sugar. Uh, but that's what makes it confusing is that right. there, no one's codified these rules and put them on the wall and said, hey, this is the right way to right. do anything. Yeah. Right? But, but, but there's something to the fact of having unwritten rules which which allows for yes. experimentation too right i right. mean when which you, is also kind of cool right when you yeah. set down all the rules ahead of time then right. you can lose out on things as well and so i mean that's a, that's a little thing to be afraid of <laughs> <laughs> i think for me personally I, I i once heard something and i was in uh, dc at the time so they called it the washington post rule here it would be maybe the san jose Merc or the san francisco chronicle <laughs> rule and it's just this how would you feel uh seeing this thing you did reported on the front page of right, the right, local newspaper right. the next Here, day. Here, I think it would be the internet. <laughs> the, the internet, that's right. Nobody you know, reads newspapers. Wide, that's a really good point. Yeah, this is funny because that's, you know, yeah, you mentioned that that was something I heard about 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, but the point is, like, how would you feel if this were publicized and people knew about it? Right. And that's pretty good. And I think yeah. with that rule, I feel like most people would be like, well, of duh, of course I'm going to take um, Ichiko out for yeah. lunch. And of course I'm going to send Mike Masnick. Uh, a review copy with a polite letter, not saying read this fucking book or else, right? It's going to be yeah. a polite letter and all that kind of stuff. Most people would not say, oh, yeah, I created six sock puppet, sock puppet accounts <laughs> right. and I trashed my, uh, the, you know, the authors who are writing books like mine who I hate. And so that's, you know, if you're just trying to figure out what, what you can do. I'm mean, going to give Where one, one, one quick example. Um, yeah. Anytime somebody contacts me about one of my books on Twitter, Facebook, and email or whatever, uh, with a, hey, Barry, I loved your new book, whatever, Graveyard of Memories, whatever whatever the book, whatever the latest is. Love your new book, blah, 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 and then say some nice things. I always write back and say, thank you so much for the kind words. Yeah, that was my favorite scene too or whatever. And um, if you don't mind, here's, um, and you have a minute, yeah. uh, if you could leave a customer review on Amazon, they really help. I'd appreciate it. And so, and some guy once criticized me for this. Um, I think he's it's kind of a personal thing with this guy, but he criticized me, <laughs> me for this on Twitter. He's like, well, Eisler's asking for... Um, for reviews again, and I just thought, first of all, I'm not the least bit ashamed. Hey, here I am, no. on national radio, or, I, <laughs> right. or um, podcast. 
copying to it, but I just feel like, are you stupid? You mean somebody contacts you and says they loved your book and you're not going to just try to nudge them a little bit? I don't say make it a five-star right. review. For me, that would be, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't look askance if somebody did, but for me personally, I don't want to tell somebody what to leave. Right. Sure. Probably it's going to be good. They've self-identified as someone who liked the book, you know, and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. But it's like, why are you making it harder by not giving them a link? Maybe they haven't thought of it. They would do it if you just, right. that's, yep. is that game in the system? I don't know. No, well, I mean, Mikey, I, I just said in the intro to this podcast, like, give us a nice review or, or give us a review. <laughs> I didn't even say nice. Right, I, said exactly. I, I would appreciate a nice review. Yeah, and I think yeah. you, you specifically <laughs> said it could be a bad review and that you wouldn't like it as much. <laughs> right. right. Um, so one uh, sort of final, final thought and then or final, final question and then we'll go into sort of final thoughts. But um, going back to the the sort of Amazon dominance thing, you know, one of the questions that I think has come up a few times is that, you know, is, is it possible for somebody else to come along? I mean, obviously it's possible, but is that likely that somebody else will come along? And certainly, you know, Google has their own books and, and you know, there are other players in this space, none of whom have really caught on. Is there, you know, is it likely that somebody else will catch on? If so, is there something specific that you think they should do or... Right. Um, I mean, and and maybe I could ask in a different way, which is, is there something out there that you wish existed that perhaps Amazon or the current platform is not providing, right? Yeah, great Um, great questions. Um, Okay, in general, I think that Amazon, as strong as they look, is actually not in as strong an anti-competitive position as New York traditionally has been, just because of the nature of distribution technology in each instance. Hmm. Paper... Uh, represents a lot of barriers to entry as a distribution system. You need a sales force, you need trucks, you need warehouses, you need uh, a system that's able to get, could be thousands, tens of thousands, even millions of, well, actually in the aggregate, of course it's going to be millions of units, not just for any individual title, but millions of units to thousands of physical points of sale. This is a a quite significant infrastructure you're talking about being uh, an upstart in that ecosystem is going to require a lot of capital. It's not an easy thing to do. And, and so New York has been able to use its lock on paper distribution to make it hard for newcomers to challenge their dominance. Amazon doesn't have that, at least not in digital, because as the, as the cliche goes, but it's only a cliche because there's a lot of truth to it that your competition is only a mouse click away. A lot of what uh, accounts for, and nobody wants to admit this in New York, but a lot of what accounts for Amazon's uh, power in publishing right now is an incredible customer experience. I mean, Barnes & Noble sells physical books and they came up with the Nook and they, they also sell digital books. Uh, if you go to their bookstore, I, I've never met anyone who, <laughs> who likes the Barnes & Noble bookstore experience, online bookstore experience more than they like the Amazon online bookstore right. experience. There are many people who like their Nooks a lot, more than they like Kindle, more than they like an iPod, whatever. They really like the Nook and what they'll often do is they'll find what they're looking for in the Kindle store and then they'll just they'll look it up quickly in the Nook store and, and <laughs> right. download it from Barnes & Noble. But the customer experience is really good. So, so that's something Amazon has going for itself. Um, what I would really like to see um, to maintain healthy competition in the industry is a couple things. One of them is I'd really like to see New York compete. I'd like to see them stop colluding, stop whining, stop participating, stop um, being behind or, yeah. or, or affiliated with panels with titles like um, How Can Amazon Be Stopped? Right. I would, as I said at this thing, what I'd really like to be on is a panel that says that's um, focused on what is Amazon doing well and how could New York do it even better? Those are the kinds of questions I would like New York to be asking and I'd like to see them step up and perform. Another thing I'd really like to see is more authors putting 
uh, bookstores on their own websites. Self-published authors can do this. Uh, Legacy-published authors can't. But one of the things that I think will constrain Amazon and other players from lowering royalty rates is um, obviously is choice for consumers. So Mm -hmm. this is another one of those things that that is fascinating to me where people talk about, they're like, Amazon, don't you, don't you authors get that? Yeah, they're paying you high royalties today, but that's only so they can sort of fatten you up, make you happy, dumb and and stupid. And, uh, and then in the future, when they're the last company left standing, they're going to screw you with low royalties. And my standard response is, oh, do you think that they might lower them all the way to 17.5%? Because that would be really, oh, wait a minute. That's the lockstep digital royalty offered by New York today. And it's fascinating to consider that people discount Amazon royalties of as high as 70% and claim they're just a stalking horse for uh, some future hypothetical day when Amazon's going to lower royalties. And they're completely sanguine about 17.5%, right. which is the prevailing norm coming out of New York. I find that really interesting psychologically. Anyway, that is not to say that Amazon should be trusted any more than any other large company or entity should be trusted. What will keep Amazon behaving properly isn't Amazon's inherent goodness because human beings are not inherently good. And Amazon is made like all other companies of human beings. What will keep Amazon uh, performing the way we want it to is healthy competition, the very healthy, the kind of healthy competition New York has never had. So where will that competition come from? Apple, Google, other big companies. Come on, New York, step up. But yeah, uh, other authors offering, authors, individual authors offering their books uh, on their own websites where they'll be making, say, 90%, 93%, depending on the PayPal fulfillment yep. system. And then how much, it's an interesting question, how much competitive pressure do you need to stop a company like Amazon from lowering its royalty rates from, say, 70 to 65%? Like, there doesn't have to be another Amazon in the system. Right. Just, there has to yeah. be another company or companies that just, if yeah. Amazon screws up, they're going to move in they're, fast. They're waiting. Right, yeah. exactly. And, and it just becomes an opportunity, right? I mean, if Amazon makes a real big misstep, then... That's an opportunity for somebody else. And that's that's, right. that's kind of the nice thing about this market. And we've certainly seen that, especially in the internet space. If you know, there have been companies that have been on top and yeah. have been very, very dominant, and they make a misstep yeah. and someone else steps up yeah. and, and it can happen very, very quickly. Yeah. And you know, companies that ten years ago, fifteen years ago we thought were, you know, always gonna be on top are, are long gone. And that's why I mean I I think it's funny when people freak out about any any kind of internet company right now being so dominant where it's like, you know, I mean, I have this, I have this article, um, I have this tab that's been sitting open on my desk for forever because I, well, I do that with tabs, but um, that is a 2007 article mm-hmm. about MySpace. <laughs> it's funny, I was, while we're talking about this, I was thinking MySpace and Facebook, and, yeah, great and, example. But the, the article itself is talking about how it is totally dominant and there will never be anyone who will be able to take on MySpace. Yeah, because network effects and they already yep. have all those yeah. users locked in and why would anybody bother setting up a new profile page on Facebook when yep. MySpace is already working so well? Great example. MySpace was one of the first um, online marketing tools I really started using aggressively. I wasn't using Facebook at all at the time and I thought, why do I really need to? I've got MySpace. It's amazing. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, the last time I thought MySpace page, last time I was there. It's probably two years ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's one of those ones where you're like, it still exists. Exactly. Right? And you wonder yeah. who goes there. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's strange. It's strange. All right. So um, I, I think uh, that's that's actually a pretty good final thought. I was going to go around and ask for final thoughts, but I think I think you actually did a really good job yeah, summing up our, our, thing, our thinking here. So uh, I wanted to thank you very much, Barry, for, for joining us thank and you guys. having this discussion. And this was a lot of fun. And uh, we'll have you back again. Well, Next week. I look too. forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye. When you DIY, you get to keep your money as leads free golden. And if